week, if you remember, uh, we had uh, we had the beginning of our service. We started with some amazing artistry for uh, for those of you who were here. Um, Actually, the only amazing part was that it was amazingly average uh, because I'm no great artist. But we're going to have a whiteboard session again uh, this week like we did last week. We began last week uh, by pointing out sort of this concept about doing church, about being the body of Christ, that the Christians, that churches, when we get together a bunch of Christians, it's, it's easy for us to easily sort of stop halfway with the resources that God has given us. And in this series about, about becoming uh, disciples who are radical, uh, d- radical discipleship is about us taking that second step, that second half of the battle that is so easily uh, missed by us. And so last week we talked about how, how we are given resources by God to give them back out to the world and to people who need to know Jesus Christ. And we're going to continue to unpack that basic idea uh, this morning. Here's what I mean. Are we on screen? Here we go. This is what often happens with churches. We have these resources, like we talked about last week, of people, and this person is smiling because they got an extra hour of sleep last night. We have people's gifts and they bring their spiritual gifts and their talents and their abilities to the table. People bring resources of money, and people bring their time, and they, they volunteer, and they, they use those gifts of time here. And, and, and we begin to live and to worship together and to manage our resources together under the assumption, this is the easy part of the halfway part of this, that our resources are managed together under this assumption that all this stuff that we bring to the table, all these resources, easily stay inside the building. It's easy for us to think about the things God's given us and to keep them right here. You remember we talked about that last week, and it's, it's easy to, to, in a sense, hoard those things to ourselves because, well, I, I, I made that money. It's, it's my time. Those are, those are my gifts. God, God gave them to me. So it's easy for us to sort of stop halfway with, uh, with our resources. Over time, over time, as we talked about last week, what, what easily happens with us in churches is that we only begin, we begin to only attract and keep the kind of people who are used to all this. We begin to attract the kind of people who already know God. We'll give me a little halo here. Them's the kind of folks we get. That's what we get when we go halfway in the battle to become disciples who are fully committed to Jesus Christ. They come to us because they like what we've got inside. They know the game. They know the drill. They know how this works. And so they like these things that we offer. And what we begin to be able to offer them uh, subconsciously, without really thinking about it a whole lot, is we work to give them prepackaged programs that meet their needs and, and, and their kids' needs. They're not usually, these people here are not usually coming and asking questions of us like, how can you help me accomplish the Great Commission in my life? 
You ever heard somebody come to church and say, how, how is it that you as a body can help me develop into a disciple who uses my life for the mission? How many folks like that are coming asking those questions? I, I've not heard one. They're not usually asking, you know, this is what I bring to the table and I want to use that gift here as a part of the body of Christ. Those are not the questions they're asking. They're saying, what do you have here that fits me? What do you have here that fits me? So, so we learn to offer them good programs that meet their needs. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But it is half the battle. It's only, it's only the first part of who we're called to be and what we're called to be as the body of Christ. The other half is this. And this is where lots of churches stop short. They don't fight this part of the battle. They say, you know what? I like what we've got. This feels good. I enjoy this. Let's, let's keep it here. Let's, let's keep it inside. This is where churches fail and and miss the boat on God's purposes for his resources and really his purposes for our lives resources for all that we are and for all that we have. We learn to tailor, in fact, who we are as people to these kinds of folks who already know God and are asking, what do you have in there that fits me? We learn to adjust our vision, in fact, of God's commission to make disciples into a vision of how to please people who are already disciples. Don't miss this. It's huge. It's why we fight half the battle. And so, and so we don't work as hard to make disciples who are ready for that second half of the battle. We learn to make disciples who enjoy what we have and who are happy with that. And so, like we talked about last week, we do not get these people. These people are not coming to us. Because we learn to put together church that answers questions that people who already know God are asking. So we get... These people over here. And non-believers aren't coming to us. They aren't coming to us. This doesn't happen. And as we see today in Matthew 9, one of the motivating factors that takes us beyond ourselves to accomplish our mission as the people of God. To accomplish our mission as the people of God individually and corporately. One of the main motivating factors that takes us onto that second half of the journey is compassion. It's compassion for the lost. One of the differences between hoarding our resources to ourselves and giving it away sacrificially is having the kind of vision for lost souls that Jesus Christ himself demonstrated. You see, the difference that takes us out 
to these people is compassion. There are two ingredients of biblical compassion that we're going to look at today. Two ingredients, basic ways of talking about what radical compassion looks like. The two ingredients are the first two things in your outline there. Supernatural, first, awareness of the condition of the lost. And we'll look at this in verse 36 especially. We'll unpack it a little bit with a few different points. Uh, Supernatural awareness of the condition of the lost. That's the first blank. And then the second is sacrificial obedience to the commission of Christ. Sacrificial obedience to the commission of Christ. It's these two ingredients that as Christ stirs within us a compassion. It's these kinds of ways of thinking about the world and our resources and, and the people outside of, is, of us. That's the disconnect that will take us to that second half of the battle to stretch us to become people as individuals and a body corporately who seeks after lost sheep. Let's go ahead and pray as we dive into the passage. Father in heaven, it's our heart's desire to seek after workers for a harvest, to pray earnestly for your goals, for our lives, for our families, for our work, for our money, for our time, all of our, all of our gifts and talents, our resources, Lord. We want them to be used by you. And so, Father, we ask that you would instruct us. We ask today, primarily, that you would give us your vision that you would provide for us compassion for those who don't know you, who don't have the privilege of calling you Lord and Savior. Give us that kind of vision today, Lord. Amen. If you're looking in your Bible, let's read through those verses again, 35 through uh, 38 real quick, just to refresh our memories. And then we'll set a little bit of a context in verse 35 and then go through 36 and uh, 7 and 8 for a bit there. Verse 35, chapter 9 in your Bibles there. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So, verse 35 here at the beginning sets the context. It tells us what Jesus was doing here in Matthew. It says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. This little section here of these verses from 35 to 8 is the conclusion of a long section in Matthew. It's a long section in Matthew that if you're taking notes, it begins in uh, chapter 4, verse 23. And chapter 4, verse 23, begins Jesus' public ministry. It's, a, it's what we call the threefold ministry. He, he preaches, he teaches, and he heals. That's the threefold ministry of Jesus that begins in Matthew 4, verse 23. And he begins his public ministry in Galilee there. 
Matthew begins to tell that story. Uh, verse 23 in chapter 4, it sounds a lot like our passage. Listen to this. It says, he, that's Jesus, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So at the end of chapter 9 here, we transition today from that section of his public ministry that describes his ministry among the crowds, that threefold ministry of preaching and of teaching and proclaiming the gospel. I'm sorry, healing. Those are the three, preaching, teaching, and healing. We transition to Jesus' compassionate response and sending out his disciples. It describes the motivation of compassion as the reason he commissions the body of Christ. The early church was sent out by that motivating factor of Jesus' compassion for the lost. Don't forget that. That's an important point. The condition of the lost requires from us, as we talked about, a supernatural awareness of the condition of the lost. We'll unpack that a little bit as we go here. Look at verse 36 there. This is Jesus' response when he sees them. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Friends, the picture that's being painted here that is a model for us is that Jesus wants us to see the crowds. The question for you first with this awareness of the condition is, is do you see the crowds? Do you see the crowds? We learn from historians that, that at this time in Jesus' ministry, there were some 200 cities and villages in that region of Galilee. It was a region, uh, we have a map here for you, it was a region that was only 40 miles wide and about 70 miles uh, long. Shown there in that shaded red area. So there are 200 cities within 40 miles width and 70 miles high that were packed. Cities and villages that were packed into that small area. A city usually had walls and a village usually did not. It was open. So there were lots of little cities and villages. And each one of them, at the smallest, according to one of the historians, had 15,000 people. Josephus was a Jewish historian, and he said, the smallest of these 200 cities contains more than 15,000 inhabitants. So based on that kind of evidence, this region of Galilee contained at least 3 million people. And because of the close proximity of these cities and these villages, Jesus could have actually had direct contact and exposure with all of these people in his ministry as he taught, as he proclaimed the gospel, as he healed them. The text says that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. He was interacting with, with huge numbers of people in a densely populated region. And so he saw masses of people and it agonized him. It agonized him to see the crowds because it says that they were, they were lost. They were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You see, Jesus was not annoyed with them. He was not angry at their, their foolish ways of living. Jesus felt sorry for sinners. Jesus, the perfect, sinless lamb, who deserves no anger, 
who deserves the wrath of no one, looks on at crowds that he knows will betray him, looking into the eyes of people whose sin will send him to a cross that he doesn't deserve, and he feels, of all things, compassion. Because they were lost. Do we see those crowds? Not even do we see them like Jesus. Do we even see them? Is that how we respond to the crowds? Do we respond to the condition of lost people with compassion? Or do we rather respond with anger or self-righteous indignation? Well, if you had lived your life right in the first place and kept your nose clean, you wouldn't be this mess in the first place. That's the kind of thing we feel, isn't it? Let's admit that that's really how we feel. In our self-righteous piety, we are exactly like the judgmental Pharisees who condemn those sinners. We even condemn judgmental Pharisees. So, so Jesus, perfect sinless lamb, deserves no hint of judgment or wrath. He looks into the eyes of rebellious sinners just like us, and he saw their real need. I implore you this morning to look beyond yourself. To look beyond this room and these walls and these comfortable pews and our cozy and our comfortable and our fun little existence to see the crowds that are all around us. We just passed 7 billion people in the world a couple weeks ago. Of these 7 billion people, there are one-third who claim to be Christian. These are people who claim to be Christ followers politically, socially, ethnically, whatever. So, so many of them are probably not the real deal. But let's assume that a third of them are. So, so out of 7 billion people, over 4.7 billion people, including literally thousands in Greene County, are on a road that leads to destruction. So, so friends, if this gospel is true, then 4.7 billion people today are headed for everlasting destruction. And if that is the case, we cannot play games. With our lives, with our friendships, our workplace environments, with our kids, with the body of Christ. We've got to see the crowds. We also, if we're going to live as Christ calls us, as, as the gospel demands, we also need to feel their suffering. We need to feel their suffering. That word there used for compassion is the verb form of a noun that needs your innards. Compassion 
in the New Testament. It means your innards. It's like your bowels and your stomach. It's the deepest parts of one's self. And so, so Jesus having compassion meant that he felt in his body, physically, the pain and the suffering of someone else. It affected him such that he felt it personally. That compassion is a deep physical empathy with the condition of somebody else. There's a great man named Dr. Paul Brand who was a missionary for many years, who spent many years in medical work among uh, lepers. He talks about, about how Jesus, Jesus felt compassion in a physical, literal kind of way. He says, Jesus reached out his hand and he touched the eyes of the blind, the skin of the person with leprosy, and the legs of the cripple. He says, I have sometimes wondered why Jesus so frequently touched the people he healed, many of whom must have been unattractive, obviously diseased, unsanitary, and smelly. With his power, he easily could have waved a magic wand. But he chose not to. Jesus' mission was not chiefly a crusade against disease, but rather it was a ministry to individual people, some of whom happened to have a disease. He wanted these people, one by one, to feel his love and his warmth and his full identification with them in their suffering. Do you feel the suffering of those who do not know Jesus Christ? Do you feel that? Does it move you? Jesus here is, is a picture for us of a God who is so filled with compassion that he is moved to touch, to interact with, to speak with, to heal people no one else cares about. And what is supernatural about this kind of awareness, about this kind of vision for our lives, what is supernatural about this kind of awareness is that it doesn't arise out of an inherent good or worth in that other person. This is key. It doesn't arise out of something that is good in that other person. That's how we think about it. We like people because we like what they do and who they are and how they act because it's like us. For Christ who was perfect, saw nothing in these crowds that would elicit compassion in him. What is supernatural about this is that our compassion for others must come from Christ in us. Compassion comes from knowing that sin for us has been taken care of and we can live in empathetic, compassionate feeling for the lost because we were lost and Christ felt that empathy for us. That is so different than how we think about sinners. We have disgust at the problems and the sin of other people. Keeping measure after measure after measure of how everybody else doesn't measure up. We are indignant and we are angry. We are frustrated and that's natural. But it's supernatural. When compassion wells up within us because Christ has identified with us. The beauty of Christ's compassion is that when we experience it, our self-righteous indignation becomes supernatural compassion for the lost. 
Radical discipleship means self-righteous indignation has no place for how we interact with other people. Because we have experienced the exact opposite of self-righteous indignation. Do you see the crowds and do you feel their suffering? And do you realize their separation? When Jesus, when Jesus looked at these crowds, he saw beyond their physical afflictions to their real problem of spiritual separation from God. So, so when we talk about suffering, we're not just talking about not, not, not having enough food to eat or having a disease or a sickness. We are talking about eternal realities. Do not miss this important point. We are talking about eternal realities. In verse 37, it says, the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. This harvest imagery is a picture of eternal judgment that is used throughout the entire Bible. These are eternal realities at stake. Isaiah 17 says, For you have forgotten the God of your salvation and not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, though you plant pleasant plants and sow the vine branch of a stranger, though you make them grow on the day that you plant them and make them blossom in the morning, yet the harvest will flee away in a day of grief and incurable pain. Joel 3 speaks of bringing all of the nations where God will sit to judge them. It says, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. It's the same picture in Matthew 13 when Jesus speaks of separating the wheat and the tares. The wheat will be gathered and kept for heaven. And the tares, the weeds that look like wheat, will be bundled for burning, it says. 2 Thessalonians the first chapter says, This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. These are eternal realities that are at stake. And Jesus knew, Jesus knew that. If we believe these words, then we must plead with Christ that he opens our eyes to see the crowds and to feel their suffering and to realize their separation from God. We pray, prayer, pray prayers to fix our bunions and our neighbor's with trivial things like football games on Saturdays, meaningless sports contests, receiving the lion's share of our affections when God gets nothing but the leftovers in our lives. This needs to be said every single Sunday in America. We are consumed with ridiculous things like football games. It doesn't matter who wins artificial battles. Who cares? Let your emotions get wrapped up in compassionate concern for lost people instead of whatever frivolous 
time-bound, silly distraction keeps you from a heart of compassion for the lost. Have a funeral for your dumb distractions, please. Because the battle is too important for us to stay halfway. Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And so he said to his disciples, he commissioned them. Out of the motivation of compassionate care for the lost, he says, I commission you in two ways. Number one, to pray, and secondly, to go. It doesn't have to be a spectacular martyrdom in a different country. Praise God if it is. Later in this chapter, Jesus says, Praise God if that's all that happens. It doesn't have to look spectacular to live a life of radical compassion. It can be something you choose to do today. And in a world and in a Christian subculture that is so blind to eternal realities, it is, it is radical. It is radical to care about a lost soul with compassion in a way that results in action. There is a young man whose name was Bill. Bill had wild hair and wore the same T-shirt with holes in it almost his entire time in college. Jeans, no shoes. That was literally his wardrobe for his four years of college. An intelligent man who was kind of esoteric and, and bright. He became a Christian while attending college. And let me tell you how that happened. Bill came to a service at the church across the street from where he went to college. Very conservative, well-to-do church. The service had already started, so so Bill started down the aisle looking for a seat. The the church was completely packed. He couldn't find a seat. And by now, people are beginning to notice this guy and feeling a little bit uncomfortable. But no one says anything, and and Bill gets closer and closer to the pulpit up front. And, And when he realizes there are no seats, no openings, he just did what felt natural. He came down to the front and <laughs> squatted down right on, the, right on the carpet in the front. Although that was perfectly acceptable for a college student in a different context, it was something that had never happened in, in this church before. By now, of course, as you can imagine, the people were a little uptight and, and the tension in the air was, was thick. About this time, uh, the minister realizes that from way at the back of the church, there's a, there's a deacon who is slowly making his way up toward Bill in the front. And, and this deacon is in his 80s, silver-gray hair, three-piece suit, a godly man, very elegant, very dignified, very courtly, walks with a cane. And as he starts walking down the aisle toward this young man, everyone is saying to themselves, you can't blame him for what he's about to do. How can you expect a man of his age and his background to understand some college kid on the floor? So it takes quite a while for the deacon to reach the young man. The church is silent, except for the clicking of this elderly man's cane. All eyes focused on him. The minister can't preach the sermon until the deacon does what he has to do. And now they see 
this elderly man drop his cane to the floor and with great difficulty slowly lowers himself sitting down next to Bill and worships with him so he won't feel alone. Everyone choked up with emotion. A picture of the gospel has happened for these people. And the minister says, what I'm about to preach you will never remember. But what you have just seen, you will never forget. Would that our lives be pictures of a stately deacon coming to sit down with a guy like Bill. Moved with compassion for someone who doesn't know Christ. Let's pray.